From lifestyle, fitness, beauty, travel, relationships, and self-care, Steph's got you covered. Welcome to your safe space, where you can stop what you're doing, relax, and let someone else do the heavy lifting for once. This is the Luxury Dropout Podcast with your host, Stephanie Joplin. I do want to put a disclaimer at the beginning of this video, letting you know that this is a trigger warning. You could possibly be triggered by something that I am saying that Leon is saying. I don't want to scare you away from it, but just in case you have experienced gaslighting, you've been with a narcissist, this could be triggering for you. So please, your discretion is advised for this episode of the Luxury Dropout. What's up, fellow dropouts? It's me, Stephanie Joplin, coming to you for another episode of the Luxury Dropout Podcast. Today, I spoke with one of the most interesting guests you will probably ever come across on a podcast. He is a former narcissist, a man who is a recovering narcissist and has made a difference in so many people's lives by speaking out on platforms like TikTok and Instagram about the signs to look for, what to do if you are dating a narcissist, some of the red flags to look for when you are out in the dating game, what to expect from a narcissist about gaslighting, all of these buzzwords, these hot button topics, what the difference is between just someone who's manipulating you and an actual narcissist. We even go into some of my own personal experiences in dating and actually my experience with dating a narcissist and how deep and dark that journey went. Let's get right into it. This is a long episode and debatable that it might need to be split up into two episodes because the content is that fire. So let's go ahead and welcome Leon Walker to the show. Leon is a 32-year Navy veteran. He is a command master chief. He is an author, motivational speaker, TikTok and Instagram legend. He is booming. So I was so excited to sit down with him and really just hash things out and really just get into the mind of a narcissist and understand where these behaviors come from and really how to protect myself and how to best approach the dating world nowadays, because it's just it's not fun out here in these streets anymore, you know? So you'll hear a lot of good information. And I think this one is very important for all women and all men to listen to, no matter what you identify as, no matter who your partner is, even if you are in a great relationship, I highly recommend that you educate yourself. So without further ado on this subject, it is truly fascinating, truly important. Something that is relatively new with regards to knowing about something that's relatively new when it comes to psychology and relationships. So I do think that taking this knowledge with you and being able to help a friend, hypothetically, it would be really important. All right, fellow dropouts, welcome back to the Luxury Dropout Podcast with me, Stephanie Joplin. Today, I want to welcome a guest that I've really been looking forward to speaking with. His name is Leon Walker. Leon, welcome to the Luxury Dropout. I'm so pleased to have you. Thanks for having me, Steph. I appreciate you having me. We literally just met, quote unquote, about maybe a couple of days ago on social media. 
when one of the accounts that I follow posted one of your IGTVs, I believe it was talking about how you were, are a reformed narcissist. And it just really piqued my interest because narcissism is such a buzzword today, even with the Gen Zers, you know, all the way through to really the millennials. I don't know about really the older, like older than me generation. They don't really talk about it a lot. If I talk about narcissism with my parents, they're like, what are you talking about? (laughs) But you know, it is a big, it's a hot topic, a hot button topic. And I think you really, I mean, you really honed in on a subject that's it's triggering to a lot of people, but also they want to know more about it. So tell us the story about how you jumped online to start speaking about this. So what happened was I was always posting. I started posting on Instagram and Facebook back in 2016, just talking about life. And it started with fitness and things like that. And then I wrote my first book called Broken about my childhood, right? Because I was very, very dysfunctional molested, had addictions at a young age, lost my virginity by the time I was eight. So I wrote a book about it. And then I was like, all right. And then, you know, I got, I found a PR and then, well, a friend of mine read my book. He's like, man, I know a PR, man, you need a PR. And I'm like, I'll just write a book. I didn't think that I'd ever write a book. So I did a book tour in 2019 and then it started going from there. So I stuck with the childhood dysfunction thing and being molested and all this stuff, which is a big deal as well. And then all of a sudden, it, I just started talking about relationships last year. And then recently, I said, you know, let me just tell people really what happened to me, who I was, why I was cheating, why I was lying, why I was very decept- deceptive, and how I messed up all of my relationships and my marriage. And then I posted a video about my narcissistic ways. I was afraid to really talk about it because I'm like, man, I mean, you know, I've been talking on social media for years, but this one was really deep. And I'm like, but I had to face my truth. You know, my, I had to face my issues and I had to, God put me on this journey. I tell people, you know, there was a time where I didn't believe in God and I was believing in the devil because he gave me what I wanted, what I thought I wanted in life. It was just making me sick and I wasn't healing. I wasn't healing mentally or physically. And then uh, going back to my PTSD and all the other issues I had when I was retiring, I was seeing psychiatrists, psychotherapists, psychologists, social workers, and nobody was giving me answers, but I knew something was wrong. And so by me posting the videos, I knew that, man, it started catching on and people want to know about these things. So that's why I was like, wow, I need to keep talking about this because me being a narcissistic guy or having narcissistic traits and never being diagnosed by medical officials because they misdiagnosed me, I had to read myself. I had to look up and research. And I'm like, man, looking at all these categories, malignant, covert, seductive, vindictive, vulnerable, narcissism. And I'm like, man, this is me. But I've been hiding this stuff for years And I was wondering why I was messing up all my relationships because I didn't know what was wrong with me. And so they misdiagnosed me. And now the videos help me help other people. And the videos are therapy for for me because people like, so you only been, how long have you been in therapy? So I was in therapy for seven months in 2015. But my therapy is talking to you. My therapy is helping men and women daily. So that helps me out. So that's where it started. Just start going and growing and growing and growing. That's really amazing. And I know you've gotten a lot of support, but do you ever get any people trying to cancel you all the time or not really? You've mostly support. Well, what happened was I haven't had anybody trying to cancel me, but I have a not even a lot of women, a few women, they always say, you know, oh, you triggered the hell out of me. And, and some will say, you, yeah, they'll say you triggered me, but I need to hear this. There was one lady that has a platform and she's 
saying, you know, there's a lot of men out there, this narcissistic group of men are doing certain things. I'm like, I'm not one of those dudes. Let's see if I posted a video and was like, I've been talking about narcissism for a long time, but I haven't. I've been living that life. I've been talking about relationships, but I just didn't know why I was screwing them up. But I haven't had anybody try to cancel me yet. Okay, good. Uh, yeah, yeah, no. So they've been they've been responding, but it hasn't been really brutal at all, no. Good, okay, thank God. Because I think it's such an important message, but you just never know how people are going to respond, especially men. I feel like men could come for you in a way and just be like, bro, what are you talking about? This is all psychobabble. You know what I mean? Like people don't really believe in psychiatry. So a lot of men don't believe in psychiatry. And usually those men need to do a lot of work on themselves. (laughs) Yeah. And so, you know, when I talk about these things, I'm talking about myself. I would always, there was a time where I was always preface my videos and say, hey, I'm talking about Leon because I would have guys say, man, you give it up the man code and Man, you know, guys would unfollow me, but I stopped caring about this. So I don't even say, hey, I'm talking about me, but I do and say I'm in character and this is what I'm talking about. But yeah, they'll unfollow. And lately, I've had a lot of men reach out to me and say, hey, man, thank you. You know, this is really helping me. Wow, that's amazing. Oh, that's so nice to hear. So I want to go back to the beginning and let everyone know that you spent 32 years, right? It was 32, right? In the Navy and you're a commander? Command Master Chief. So Command Master Chief. Okay. But that's a pretty high rank, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's just how, So what happens is that's, you can, the highest you can go in the Navy is Command Master Chief. Master Chief actually is E9. But then there's like three other levels from Command Master Chief. It's a Force Master Chief, a Fleet Master Chief, and then Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy. So the highest you can go is E9. Yes. And I reached Oh, that. wow. Okay. Amazing. Congratulations. That's fantastic. Now, even before that, you talked about having a hard childhood. I know you and I have talked about your relationship with your mother being very strained and how she self-medicated. She probably had some sort of issues. You're not sure really what they were, but she was a little absent in terms of, you know, not really noticing that things were going on with you, like your babysitter, for example. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So when I started talking about this throughout my Navy career, I would talk a little bit about it because I was still embarrassed to say, hey, I was molested by my cousins first when I was five. Then I was afraid to talk about um, losing my virginity at eight. And I was afraid to talk about being addicted to porn at seven. And then I was afraid to talk about a male member of my family touching my private area. So I was like afraid, but the, the further I moved up in the Navy, there were other people like me that had those issues. So I said, you know, let me share a little bit with them and see how it works, how it helps them. So it started helping people when I was sharing my story. I became more confident in telling my story and seeing it, how it's helping people prevent them from committing suicide because I too had suicide ideations as a child, 11 and 12 years old. But my mom didn't know because I was afraid. So when I did my book tour, I met a lot of people, a lot of psychotherapists, a lot of psychologists, and you know they were wanting to know about my story. And I started looking up, I started doing a lot of reading and research on child molestation and dysfunction, things like that, and how divorce affects a child. So I found out that 90%, and this number could be different by now, but I found out that 90% of the perpetrators are somebody you know or trust. And this was in 2019. I've heard that. Yeah. And I also found the key thing was 80% of the cases go unreported, right? And the people that I was interviewing with the podcast, the TV shows, the radio interviews, nobody knew. And even the, the psychotherapists didn't know that why the 80% of the cases go unreported. My reasoning for not reporting and not telling on anybody is because, first of all, I didn't know how to report, right? And then the main 
reason why I think a lot of people don't report it is because when my babysitter was molesting me, um, she helped me. She helped me with my pain of my parents fighting and arguing. She helped me get over the fear of my father coming home drunk and beating my mother or my mother shooting at my father, trying to kill my father. She helped me like master that pain and I suppressed it. So she was giving me money, quarters. She was giving me food and she was having intercourse with me. So I decided not to say anything because you know why? I didn't want it to stop. So 80% of the cases go unreported because that child develops a relationship with the perpetrator. And so it could be because the child is not getting anything from their parents, which my parents are great parents, don't get me wrong, being bullied, you know, doesn't have an outlet. So my outlet was to be in love with my babysitter. So that's why I didn't report it. And a lot of young men and women don't report it because fear of retaliation, fear of the family not believing them, or fear of losing that person is showing them what we think is love. Yeah, and I know that a lot of people don't report you know, rape when they are in a relationship because they're like, well, he's my boyfriend. She's my girlfriend. You know, we have sex all the time. Who's going to believe me? So I, I mean, it's the same idea. So I totally understand that. Yeah, so it's not just kids, but yes, yeah, older adults that, that are in abusive relationships and afraid to report and not. And sometimes they don't even believe that it's happening to them. They don't believe that they're abused, you know? So yeah. we'll have to touch on that a little bit later because my when I remember I was telling you I had a relationship with a narcissist and exactly what happened to me. So, so continue, please. So your childhood, you know, and then leading up to, yeah. Yes. My dad was always working. He worked at Ford. He was gone a lot, but he was there. He, he provided. My mother was the one to give the parties and the birthday parties and all that stuff. So she was there, but between the fifth and sixth grade, my parents' divorces started, you know? So once it did, once the divorce started, my father was, you know, of course, when you're going through divorce, the male is asked to leave the home. And so he left. So there was no discipline in my household, you know? And when my father left, probably 80% of uh, the family income was gone too. So we didn't have lights, water, or gas during the divorce proceedings, barely had food. So then now I'm going through this thing where I'm addicted to porn, being molested, I'm hungry, I'm angry, I have anger issues. Now I'm starting to steal. So everything was compounded by the time I was 12 years old and then being bullied by a male member of my family. So once we lost our house in the sixth grade, my family was split up. That was really the end for me because I was on my own. I was sent to live with a lady that I didn't know, got to know her. My mother and brother moved to a hotel and my sister was sent across Cleveland to live with another lady. So by the time I was 12 years old, I was on my own and my mother got us, eventually got us back when I was like 13, but we were living in the one bedroom apartment. There was four of us. So from the first grade to the sixth grade, I went to bed so much that I couldn't sleep in the bed. I was put on the floor and my parents didn't, that wasn't abuse, I didn't think, but I couldn't sleep in the bed because on the top bunk, I would always wet the bed and it was dripping down on my brother. So put me on the floor and now I'm sleeping on a piece of carpet from probably the first grade to the sixth grade. Was that like anxiety induced or do you remember? So what happened was I started getting therapy when I was 50 in 2015, right? And so the social worker was asking me a bunch of questions. I was in therapy for seven months, like I said. And she asked me, she said, tell me about your childhood. And then I started telling her and she said, do you realize that you were abused? I said, and even at Stephanie, 50, I didn't know, I didn't process that I was abused. I had no idea. She said, a symptom of abuse is bedwetting. And that's when I found out, yeah, I didn't know. 
And so I was waiting. To I didn't either. I just don't, I don't know when you're wetting the bed. Like, is it, do you get a feeling of anxiety? Do you remember a feeling of anxiety at all? Or do you remember anything? And so it went from peeing in the bed to just peeing on myself when my father come home, you know? So the anxiety was there because when my father would come home, I love my dad. I still love my dad. He died in 1999 as an alcoholic. But when he would come home, I knew something was going to happen. Either I was going to get a spanking or he and my mom was going to fight. So the anxiety, my anxiety levels were extremely high. So it was all of that. It went from peeing, just peeing on myself, to peeing in the bed, to just peeing because I had, that was my only outlet. And so, yeah, I had no control over it, but I didn't realize I was abused until I was 50. Yeah. Right. So I have generalized anxiety. I didn't know what that was. And it runs in my family. And even from a little, like from kindergarten, I have a memory of being, now I can define it as anxiety, but I didn't know what that was until I was maybe 30, you know? And I was like, why am I feeling this feeling in the pit of my stomach? Like I've got to go to the bathroom or, you know, my heart races. I feel like I want to rip my skin off of myself. And then I read about it and I was like, what is this? And then finally, you know, oh, ding, ding, ding. It's anxiety. So yeah. So a lot of things come with that. And I stopped washing up. I stopped brushing my teeth. My teeth had turned green as a kid. So yeah, that's depression. Yeah. And so, I, you know, think about it. I didn't know about depression. I didn't know about anxiety, PTS, abuse, none of that. Here I am going through life just like, and then it, I joined the Navy later on, and I'm just still going through life like this. The only thing is, I, I started washing up, of course, started brushing my teeth, of course. I stopped peeing in the bed, but I still had these issues from my childhood that I'd never got help with, you know? But at the time, the stigma of having a mental disability, quote unquote, or a mental problem made you cuckoo, right? Like that you're crazy or, you know, that's like the thinking of the older generations. And so I'm sure like if you had told your parents, Hey, I have anxiety or I'm depressed, they would have been like, get out of here. Like, I'm glad you brought that up because when you get a chance, look up the USS Stark, S-T-A-R-K, right? So I was 21 years old. And when you see it, when you pull up, you'll see a picture of a ship sinking and it's on fire. So I was on a fire team on another ship on the USS Reed. We had to go render assistance to the USS Stark. We were in the Persian Gulf at the time for four months, and they got hit by two missiles. And I'm telling you the story because being the leader on a fire team, you had to go fight a fire, just like a regular firefighter. But when we got there, we had to fight one fire. And when you look at the picture, you'll see the smoke coming from the ship. That's one fire we put out. But there were 37 men that were burned to death. And you saw that. Yeah, I had to actually go around with a plastic bag and pick up fingers. So you have no choice when you. And so I tell you the story because I had to go see a psychiatrist then. Right. And I was on that ship for 12 hours, putting bodies in body bags, picking up fingers, feet, peeling people off the deck that were burned to the deck. Ooh, oh, my God. And we peel them off. This part of the arm would come off. The face would come off. So we just had to fill them up and keep going and then put them in a body bag and then carry them. It's like it became my norm. So you can smell burned flesh. Have you ever smelled burned flesh before? Well, when I burned myself, yeah. I mean, not dead burned flesh. Yeah, though. this is <laughs> a very distinctive smell. So anyway, after we left, they flew us back off of that ship. No, we caught a, a boat from that ship to my ship so that they can tow that ship back into Bahrain. Following... When I pulled back, I believe in the San Diego, we had to go see a psychiatrist. So I saw a psychiatrist for two weeks and I stopped. So he said, you know, either we can continue seeing you and then process you out of the Navy 
or you can stay and keep taking medicine and try to remain in the Navy. I said, I'm not coming back and I left. So my thing was, I didn't want to keep going to see the, the psychiatrist because people would make fun of me. They would call me crazy. Yeah. And so that's when I knew something was wrong with me because I still have nightmares because of that. And these pills, I have a bunch of pills that I take. Yeah, for sleeping disorders, nightmares. I didn't even know there was such a thing as taking pills for nightmares, right? So I didn't find out that I had this severe PTSD until 2015 when they misdiagnosed me with everything else, but, and PTSD. So yeah, I didn't want people to make fun of me about being cuckoo or crazy. So yeah, I stopped going to the psychiatrist and, and I kept this. Especially being military, you know, too. Not only the generation that you were in, but the, the military specifically, I feel like you get made fun of, you get, come on, you know, like, what is it? You know, like just, I mean, basically just saying like, are you even a man? Like what's wrong with you? Yeah. Yeah. And you hear those things. So, and me, the type of person I was back then, I'm still this way, you know, outgoing, social, funny, making jokes, but I was always joking with other people. Now it's like, if I go back to the ship and they process me out, they're going to make fun of me because I'm crazy, you know? And I was losing my mind because even now, I have to sleep with the light on. I can't sleep in darkness, even at this age of 55, because I still have nightmares about that incident that happened in 1987. Of course you do. Of course you do. I mean, I was in a car accident two months ago and I still, sometimes I'm on the road and I'm just like, ah, like I panic about, but, and that was a car accident. Like no one died. So I can't even imagine what that was like for you. We had to see men stacked up on each other, burn, you know, skulls, just facial features burned off, looking inside their neck, arms snapped off, bones sticking out. You know, at 21 years old, I wasn't ready to see that. And so you think about it, we get there and we got to carry the bodies, pick up body parts, peel people off the deck, put them in a the bag, take them off, ship, ship. It was like handing off meat, you know, but we're handing off bodies. And so- I thought someone's husband or someone's son, you know? One lady was there and she had just come into Bahrain because her husband was- retiring he was going to fly back to california and he was one of the i never got a chance to talk to her but he was one of the first bodies we found <gasps> he had been burned oh. in his bed yeah no oh that's so horrible god rest his soul i can't imagine yeah and so that's why i didn't continue seeing a psychiatrist because i don't want people to call me crazy no that i totally get that were you developing i know you said you had this porn addiction what did that, was that like magazines? What was that? like? Oh, no. Uh-uh. Those were straight up movies. Eight millimeter. A family member started showing me those movies and that warped my little mind, right? So I started seeing, of course, men and women and then black men and white women, black men and Asian women, Latina, everything. And what that did to me was I looked at women as being very docile and subservient to be dominated. And that's what I saw. And then I talk about this in my book, Broken, where my a family member drilled a hole in my mother's bedroom wall, which was adjacent to the bathroom. So my mother and father threw parties every Friday. And we would watch the women come in there and undress and just adjust their bras and use the restroom. And I would sit there and just look through. And I was, what, eight years old, nine years old, eight years old. And so that gave me, I mean, I started seeing things at a young age that shouldn't have been seen, you know, the body parts of developed women. So now I'm seeing how women are looking at 30, 35 years old. So young girls my age couldn't do anything for me because I saw well-developed women. Instead of being with these young girls, 
and, you know, maybe riding a bicycle or playing sports, which I did, I looked at them as not, you know, they couldn't do anything for me because they weren't fully developed. So now I develop a sense of loving and liking and being attracted to older women. Okay. And so with the porn, I saw women as just sex objects, just toys. Okay. And it didn't start coming out because I had watched porn all through elementary school and didn't have it in junior high school because we moved. So the eight millimeter camera was gone. However, once I get into the Navy, the images of the porn and what I saw came back to me because now we deploy to go to Australia, Singapore, Thailand, Philippine Islands, Hawaii, Hong Kong. And now I'm seeing these women that I have access to and the porn, visit of porn came back to me. So I just looked at women as like, you know, it's you just sex to me and nothing else. It was like you're coping. It's like a way to cope. It was. That's all it was. And so I was suppressing things. I was lusting for women. My cousins had hurt me. My babysitter had hurt me. I didn't want to hurt women physically. I'm not a physical type of guy to hurt women, but I was hurting them verbally. And I was hurting them by dating them and leaving them, leading them on, lying to them, deceiving them, you know? And so I just used them as objects, as toys. That's all I knew. Like it kind of turned you on to degrade them a little bit, maybe? Yeah, because of when I was a child, I saw women being degraded and they would be smiling and then performing and smiling and performing. So I'm like, all right, this is what they do, you know? This is what they like, yeah. This is what they like. And so that coupled with losing my mom, well, my mom sent me to live with another lady. I had emotional issues, dealing with emotional dysregulation and detachment issues. So I didn't want to love. I didn't want to hold. I didn't want to hug. I didn't want to cuddle. I didn't want to hold hands because I lost that nurturing from my mom. So as I get older, I never regained that. And then I joined the military and why should I hug a woman in the Navy? Or why should I hug a woman in Thailand? I'm not. This is just sex. And that's it. I'm not holding your hand. We're not going to cuddle. And so that damaged me in my relationships because I never liked to cuddle or hold hands or hug. I didn't want to hug because I was dealing with emotional detachment from my childhood, from my mother giving me away. Yeah. Okay. So hand in hand with that, I want to talk about how, you know, oftentimes, like for me specifically, and I'll speak for myself, I can't speak for everybody, but a lot of the times people will say that the best sex of their lives was with like the most toxic guy, right? The most narcissistic guy. And that was what happened with me until I realized that it was because that was the only time I had his full attention and his full, you know, what I thought was love. And he was touching me, you know? So like you said, he wasn't a holding hands type of guy either. Oh, no, we're not going to connect like that. We don't. And so the reason why narcissistic people are so powered up sexually is because that's means of power over you, right? Especially if you say, hey, I like this, I like that. My last boyfriend didn't do this, didn't do that. Narcissistic people pay attention to what you're not getting or what you weren't receiving not just from your ex, but from your parents or from your dad. So we, we, in our mind, we become better than your ex. In our mind, we become your dad. And you don't even realize it because you, you're being love-bombed and sex-bombed. So the, the narcissistic person, when it comes to being seductive, because there are seductive narcissists, right? And there are vindictive narcissists. What they do is their energy level is extremely high when we know that you need us for sexual purposes. So we study. I study women in porn to hurt women outside of porn. I study women to understand her body better than she knew her body. So when I do that, I can control her mind. So that's what narcissistic people do. They study 
everything about you physically, mentally, they won't tell you because they want to win. We want to win at any cost, by any means necessary. So their highest level of energy, I call this the energy light zone, is when it's a sexual thing. Because like you said, we're not holding hands. We're not going to cuddle. We just want to please you sexually because that does please us. But then we know that afterwards you want to cuddle. That's pleasing you. We don't want to do that. So we did that. You know what I'm saying? It's narcissistic people are very selfish, needless to say. It's all about us. It's all about what we want. It's all about what you need and our ability to give you what you need just to control you. Well, it's interesting you say about the control because I'm sober, not that I'm an alcoholic or recovering. I just don't drink. I don't do drugs. I I don't like the way it makes me feel. And I, I also don't like the taste of alcohol, for example. It's just not something I was ever into. Don't get me wrong. I went to UNLV for college, so I definitely drank, but not because I liked it, just because I was peer pressured into it. So when me and my ex were dating, oftentimes, like if there was a night where we were staying in all night, he would make me because he would just, he wouldn't force it down my throat, but he was literally like, come on, come on, come on, come on, do this. But there was like this drug called GHB, I think it was. Was it? Yeah, it's a roofie, I think, right? Yeah, a roofie, yeah. And so he's like, it'll just relax you. Like, it makes you relaxed. And I'm like, oh, okay. Like, I guess I could try it. So he would like give it to me to make my inhibitions go away, right? And then he would have more control over me. And then I almost got like, not addicted to it, but addicted to us like having sex on it or you know, being together on it because he was so like loving to me on it because I think it just lowered his inhibitions and he was able to like express, you know, more, even if he didn't mean it, he just was able to be like, oh, I love you so much, Stephanie, you know, like you're the one for me, blah, blah, blah. I don't think he even meant it. I think it's just like, it was the drugs, like making you happy, like being on ecstasy or something. Right. So with that, it's like what he did was, had you held on and told him no, 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 no. Sometimes we find other people. Oh, he would have been really pissed off. Yeah, they get mad because they don't like to be defeated. They don't like to say for you to tell them no. And so if if they have to add a roofie or anything else or lie to you, they're going to do whatever they need to do to feel like they are winning and to feel like they had accomplished something, you know? Right. Yeah. And then two, you know, like he would do the domination kind of stuff in bed with the choking and things like that. And I was okay with it. You know, I consented to it, but then there was one time where I wasn't consenting. He actually was in my home without my knowledge. He'd come inside. He was hiding in my guest room and I came in and he was like, why aren't you answering the phone? You know, cause as soon as I take the control away, He's like, that's not okay. So he's waiting for my home. So that for some reason, us fighting turned him on. So like, it was like this for him. Yeah, that's a switch because now it's like he triggered you. And now he has to control the trigger. And now he has to make it intense and keep it intense. And then this is as sick as this may sound. After that or during that, they're going to try to be very seductive while the argument is going on, while you're fighting, they get turned on, then they'll start hugging you, then they'll start kissing you. Next, you know, you're having sex. Yeah, well, what happened was that I didn't want to have sex with him, but my body was reacting to, you know, the whole relationship. So like, you know, like it's like my body wanted to have sex, but my mind didn't want to have sex. And so when he grabbed me and he started touching me, he's like, oh, you're turned on, whatever. I'm like, no, I don't consent. I don't want to have sex with you like verbally, but my body's saying differently. So he took that as green light. 
And like, I tried to record it on my phone. He like threw the phone across the living room and he ended up like choking me and having sex with me against my will. And, you know, ultimately I did go to the hospital and I did report it, but (laughs) funnily enough, the SVU detective was like, well, you just said you guys had sex the, the day before and you allowed him to choke you then. So like your marks on your neck could be from that. And I'm like, oh, I literally told that officer, I said, you're the reason why people don't report. I told him that straight up. Yeah. And he could be a narcissist, too, because that I'll tell you something. When you report it, I'm not saying a lot of people like this, but I've seen people like this. When you report it to a certain person and they see the marks, that can turn them on, too. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. So when I was writing my book in 2016, it was really graphic, right? I described the scene with my babysitter. The publishing company told me to pull it out because pedophiles can read it and get turned on. But it's important to the story. Yeah, I did the best I could to convey what I was trying to say. But with self-reporting, those people can get turned on too. There's been doctors that have touched women that were raped or put them to sleep and touched them inappropriately. Yeah, so you just have to be careful with that too. Yeah. I tell you what, though, there is nothing exciting about a rape kit. Nothing at all. It is absolutely horrible. I'm like, please stop touching me now. But you know, I think the funniest thing was for me for going to the hospital to report, I was by myself because I didn't want it. My sister was eight months pregnant or seven months pregnant. I didn't want to tell her. And then my parents were obviously, you know, wrapped up in their own thing. I was like, I'll just drive myself to the hospital. So when I got there, I was walking up to the desk and I was like, wait, I have to tell them what happened to me. Like I have to say the words, right? And like you said, you don't want to admit it to yourself because like, that's your boyfriend, you know, but then you're just like, I have to say the word rape. Like I have to say that because otherwise they don't know the importance. No, they don't. You have to say those words. Just like now dealing with the narcissist, you have to call yourself out. You have to say I'm being abused. You have to say I'm being stupid. I'm being used. I'm being lied to. But if you don't, you'll keep going. You think it's okay. And so you got to call yourself off, definitely. Right. And I've never talked about this publicly. People know that are in my inside circle. Um, but I want I want to put this out there and just let people know that, you know, I was manipulated. I, you know, he was seeing another girl on the side that I was like, no, he's not. She's just being crazy. This other girl's just making it up. And I remember he and I were in bed one time, just laying there. This girl walks in the door and she's just like, just so you know, like we had sex there earlier today. And I was like, no, whatever. No, you guys didn't. And then I got mad at him and I was like, is she telling the truth? Like, did you guys really have sex today? And then of course he kicked me out. So, you know, with that, and this is the manipulative part of the way that I was, but the manipulative narcissist, they'll tell the truth and make you think that it's a lie, but it's the truth. And they hope that you think it's a lie and they'll laugh. Totally. Yeah, I've done that a lot. And I'll go, so you'll go, seriously? I mean, yeah, it's like, yeah, you're just playing. And in my mind, I'm saying, I just warned you. But I won't say that. And so when I do it, when it comes out, I'll say, I told you that two months ago. And she'll go, yeah, you did. Now you're not going to get rid of me. You're not going to be mad at me. You're not going to, you're not. You're going to give me another chance because women like honesty. But in my mind, I made you think that it was a joke or a lie, but it was actually the truth because of my facial expressions and because of the way I laughed about it. But I told you. So that's a very manipulative and dangerous way to come across a woman that narcissistic people do. Yeah. I mean, I just thought it was funny that like he had cheated on me and then he kicked me out for asking 
if he cheated. Yeah, because it's like at the time he didn't really answer the question because he knew that had he answered the question, you would have probably broke up with him or left. So his thing is, let me kick her out now because I win. I tell people all the time, narcissistic people have to win by any means necessary. They don't like to lose. Yeah, but then he kicks me out and I drive off and then he's calling me to come back. Of course, because he doesn't, (laughs) because he's not ready for you to defeat him. Oh, it doesn't make sense. (laughs) Yeah, right. They'll call you back because it's like you left. You got away. You know, oh, she got away. It's like, here's the thing. You know, they say a serial killer is somebody that kills three or more people. We never talk about serial cheaters, ever. Serial cheater is somebody that cheats three or more times, one time, two times. But I was, I call myself a serial cheater because I related myself to a serial killer. I wasn't killing females. I wasn't murdering anybody, but I was killing hopes and killing dreams for three or more people, probably 50 or 60 women. So we never talk about serial cheaters, which is what I was. And people are like, there's no way. How can I not be one? People, see, here's the thing. With my honesty, people are like, mm, I'm being honest. I have nothing to hide. I don't want to hold this back, hold this in anymore. I was a serial cheater. And it's like, again, the manipulative part of me could have been saying that to women before to get them to be, it'd be easy for me to be seduced them, you know? But it was like a really tricky way of doing it and talking to him and getting what I wanted. Oh, you're so honest. I'm like, Leon, that can't be true. Yeah, no. Nah. You know, and it was true. But we never talk about serial cheaters, you know, ever. That's really true. I mean, I used to cheat when I was younger, but I feel mine was because I had really bad self-esteem. And so if I was with someone, I was like, men still don't like me. I need to make sure they like me. And so that was my reason for cheating. I just had bad self-confidence, but... Yeah, you wanted somebody to pay into you, to talk to you, to compliment you and make you feel better. Now, if you're with this guy and he's not doing that enough, it's like, look, you need to feed me. I'm vulnerable. And then you see this guy, he's like, hey, you're beautiful, you're cute, whatever. And now you're lowered to him and you need the good guy, but because you have self-esteem issues and it's not their fault. But it's, you know, yeah, I get that too. No, I mean, you know, and my ex-husband, I've been divorced for 11 years now. But just before we got married, he's like, well, I'm the only one who's going to love you. Like, who else will love you? And we were both so young. I mean, I got married when I was 22. So, you know, I was a baby, in my opinion. And yeah, and I don't blame him. Like, I did fucked up stuff, too. But what I think happened is that I just because of that, that was in my head. And so anytime anyone would pay me attention and I didn't cheat when we were married, but you know, after, like before we were married and we were just like engaged and he cheated too. I think, I don't know what his reasons were. I can't speak for him, but I would just, you know, want to look for, you know, any guy that was like, Hey, you're really hot. I'm like, I am right. I'm hot. Okay. Like let's go make out, you know? Right. And as soon as you do that, that's when he'll start to abuse you, use you, or maybe not. But if he's a narcissist type of guy and you fall for that, which a lot of women do, that's when it starts. And so most narcissistic people are very complimentary. They, they'll tell you nice things. They'll charm the hell out of you. They know what you want to hear. What I used to do was, was all in my conversation. I listened to what she was saying, like you just said, and she didn't think she looked good. And she told me that. I told her that she looked good. You know, she was hot. She was beautiful. She was pretty. So I'm feeding her ego while she's stroking my ego by 
all in my face and just listening to me and, you know, continue the conversation. Next, you know, we're often going to a hotel or in the woods some damn where, you know? Oh, so. yeah, anywhere, anywhere. Yeah, I would remember just with my narcissistic ex, like wanting to please him sexually all the time. Like, I just, you know, I was like, let me do this for you. Let me do right. this for you, yeah. you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And a lot of women do that. Yeah, and I don't know what the deal is, but it's like, I don't know if it's not necessarily what you physically look like, but it's like a spell that a narcissist it's how they make has. you feel. It's yeah. Like, so in 1991, in February, I woke up that morning. I told this is what I said to my girlfriend. I said, I don't like you. I don't love you. And I'm going to cheat all over the world. I was like 24 years old. And so I did that. Right. And I was all over in Japan, Thailand, Korea, Hong Kong. What did she say, though? What did she say she to you? She started crying. I left that morning about seven to head to the ship. She started crying and we, you know, she hit me and I walked out. I just like, I don't like you anymore, right? And so I called back a month and a half later and it was five in the morning and a guy answered the phone in my apartment with my girl. I bet you lost your shit. Lost my mind. First time I had cried in, I don't know how many years. We pulled back in. We were in Japan at the time. We pulled back into San Diego, May of 91. And normally when the ship pulls in, the family's on the pier. The girlfriends, husband, wives, she wasn't there. She came to see me like hours later. Now she took the control back from me. She started telling me what to do because she had her hair cut. She had on lip gloss, eyeliner, all this looking good. And I'm like, damn, you look good. She's like, don't compliment me because it don't mean anything. Been overseas doing, and so, long story short, she I wind up seeing a picture of this dude that she fell in love with, and I called him an ugly MF. I'm like, this ugly, but he was, but he had her. He took her from me because he was doing the things that I wasn't doing. He was holding her hand, he was complimenting her, he was hugging her, he was buying the little gifts. I'm always a, I'm a provider for my girl, right? But he was doing, he was just doing the little things that I wasn't doing. He was telling her he liked her, he loved her. When I told her I didn't like her and I didn't love her, he did the opposite. So when I got older and got into my manipulative ways and my narcissistic ways, I started remembering what I did to my girl and what he did to her to take her, or I pushed her into his arms. So I started being very manipulative too back in the 90s. So I studied these traits. But yeah, when you when he started doing the things that I wasn't doing, he swooped her right off her feet and I was devastated. Yeah. Surprise. (laughs) Right. Oh, my God. I bet you were so angry. Oh, my God. That was like and I still talk about this now when I talk to people about relationships, about not hurting your girl. You know, if she's vulnerable because she told me she was vulnerable. And I'm like, you know, I don't care about you being vulnerable. When a woman tells you that, listen, you know, you got to step your game up. You got to change something. You got to, you know, be more supportive of her and understand and listen, communicate. I wasn't doing any of those things because I'm like, you know, we both look good. You know, sex is great. That was it. I wasn't doing anything else. I could take her out on a nice weekend. I could shower her with gifts. But when it was time to be intimate or kissing her on her forehead or holding her hand or walking through the park or walking through the mall holding hands, I'm like, ah, no, I'm good. But she was needing that. So everything else I could do didn't matter. The money didn't matter. The cars didn't matter. The nice apartment didn't matter. She didn't feel like we were as a couple. She didn't feel close to me because I kept her distant. Well, I'm an empath. 
So unfortunately, I tracked a lot of these type of personalities. And with my ex, he had no money. He had actually just gotten out of prison and I'd known him for like 10 years. And how we started even hanging out was like he had an ankle monitor and had to stay at home. So I was like, I'll come visit you. And then it ended up like escalating from there. And I I didn't even plan on it, but he didn't have hardly any money except for the drugs that he was selling. I think I allegedly, but you know, it was always me buying the things and me doing the things and me doing the gift giving and trying to fix him and help him and trying to get him job interviews and driving him to a job interview and things like that. So Have you had any experience talking with people who are self-proclaimed empaths? And what do you think about that? Yeah, a lot of women. I get a lot of like inappropriate DMs, but conversations about being empath. And so my thing with them, here's the thing with them and you, right? With you being an empath, however you want to pronounce it, what you forget is that, and I talk about this in the video I just posted, is that it's not that you attract these people. Is that you select these people. Yes, that's right. You did say that. What happens is where you get lost at, a lot of people, including myself, I know now, but I didn't know five years ago, 10 years ago, I didn't know what my love language was, right? Now, your love language is probably acts of service, communication, physical touch. Could be more, right? But you meet people and women do not ask a man, ask a man about his love languages. They don't. I do now. <laughs> you do now, <laughs> Before right? I didn't, yeah. Right, and so if he says, well, Oh, my love language is receiving gifts. Probably selfish as hell. Nine out of 10, it's physical touch. Like literally. Physical touch. Okay, right. Physical touch. And that's for him, not for you. No, no. That's that's what he likes to receive. Right. And if he stops there, you can believe that you're not going to get much out of that relationship. You're in one box. That's right. One box. Again, we talk about the narcissistic, the seductive narcissist energy level is up when his love language is physical touch. Right. Because that's what he wants to do, what he wants from you, how he wants to control you. So the physical touch goes into his narcissistic trait of being seductive, of being manipulative. So it goes, they all intertwine with each other. And so a lot of women never ask the man what his love languages are. I do now. So that's a great conversation because you get to know a person, whether you're compatible, you have energy, you're not compatible, you don't have chemistry, you have chemistry, whatever. But a lot of women don't ask about a man's love languages. And a lot of men don't ask that. And so what happens then, you have relationship mismatch. You're in it, and he's out of it. You're all the way in, and he's halfway out. He's never in. And so I talk about the love languages, seasons and reasons, uh, and things like that. But, yeah, you have to know what the love languages are if you're going to really get with this person. But empaths, and I talk to the women that call me about that or text me about that, I say, well, do you know his love languages? She'll go, no, because you're a giver. You're a provider. You support. You protect. And you've given this to a person as pretty much a 35-year-old child. And then when it comes at the end, when he's all running around and leaving you, and you're giving him everything, and he doesn't want to stay in a relationship, and he's cheating, you're like, well, what happened to me? What did I do? Women always say, what did I do wrong? What's wrong with me? Nothing. <laughs> You didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> right. It's this this person that you chose. It's not that you attracted that person. You selected that person. And now you, you want to rehabilitate them. You want to train them. You want to nurture them back to good health. And here you are. Your heart's broken. You got wrinkles on your eyes. You got bags. 
You don't think you're pretty anymore. You make yourself unhealthy. You're eating garbage. You're not working out. You're drinking. You're smoking. All because this person you select, you try to rehabilitate, you know? I get that a lot. That's one of the main things I get in my DMs about. Why is he, why doesn't he like me? Why doesn't he love me? He's incapable of loving you. I'm I say, sh- yeah. I'm yeah, sure our you know, listeners right now are feeling personally attacked by what you're saying. <laughs> and so I get that. I'm like, look, I am not trying to trigger anybody. I'm telling y'all the real deal, the truth. When I first did that video, it's like, you triggered the hell out of me. You son of a I'm like, look, I can't help it. I'm going to tell you my truth. I'm going to trigger you not on purpose, but what I'm telling you is the truth. And you're going to see it because everything I've done, majority of women in this world have experienced. Yeah. Well, you need to be self-aware. I mean, I used to say my love language was words of affirmation, but it is not. I thought it was because I love to hear all the sweet, sticky stuff, but that's not my real love language. I like quality time. Quality time. And I talk about that too, but a lot of the empaths come, they give me, you know, they call, contact me. What's wrong with me, Leon? Why does he like me? Why did he go to this other woman and not oh, me? sweet sugar. Right. But yeah, it's not you. A lot of times we go, and I did this. Let me just say me. A lot of times I went to the other woman because it was the path of least resistance. Absolutely. She it's wasn't going to stand up to me. She wasn't going to say anything. I come and go as I please. I was never physically abusive, but I was verbally abusive. Make her cry, watch her cry. Then she apologized to me if I made her, after I made her cry. Right? Yeah. I'm sorry that you didn't. I'm sorry. I'm like, oh, yeah, whatever. I'm out again. I'll be back in like three hours. So, yeah, and then when I met a woman that didn't take that from me, I was very uncomfortable. I didn't like it. I was like, oh, I feel like a little boy. I don't have any control, you know? So the only thing they're going to do is cheat. They're going to go find somebody that's going to stroke their ego, build them up, make them feel good, all because of he met a woman that was good for him, good to him, strong, supportive, all of that. But narcissistic people can't handle that. Why do you think this, the roller coaster, this, that sick cycle of toxicity, why do you think it's so addictive? Because they're giving you a little bit of what you want and you're like, oh, this feels good. Then they disappear because your last boyfriend didn't do, like I told you earlier, we listen to what you say. Listen to what your last boyfriend, your ex-husband didn't do. Listen to, to the fact that your dad wasn't there. You don't know how to do this. You know, you want a daddy. You want to look up to a man. You want to take care of a man. Your father was gone. You feel like, you know, you've been, he's been absent all your life. You don't know how to, you know, understand a man. So he'll tell you, hey, this is what you need to do. And now he's teaching you because you want your dad to teach you. But he couldn't because he was gone. He died. He was in jail. He was on drugs. But your mom is saying this, 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 and this. But do you say, mom, you chose my dad. So how can you tell me? Now you want to listen to this guy, right? So it's that they give you a little bit, make you feel good. They stroke your ego. It's all playing on all of your emotions. Well, are you talking about like breadcrumbing or because I'm talking about I'm talking about that cycle of, you know, like it's super high, high and then it's super low, low. Right. Okay, so when it's super high, high, that's when he or she are at their best. Right. And then what happens is they feel themselves getting close to you and then they Move out the way and you draw, fall and hit the ground. Boom. Like your analogy with the amusement park. There you go. The, the amusement park, playground, that's exactly what it is. But then we'll come back and get you. So you feel like, oh, okay, he's still here. He does like me. And we hold you and pick you up. And then right when we feel like we get a little close to you and you get a little too comfortable, 
hey, I need to put you on the sliding board, or I need to put you on the merry-go-round, or I need to put you on the seesaw. I feel like I'm laughing so I don't cry or something. You know what I mean? It's just. <laughs> yeah. So I was, Amazing. I'm telling you this because I was that guy where I'm like, um, I don't want it. So it always goes back to our childhood, being emotionally detached, dealing with emotional dysregulation, scared to love, scared to hold, scared to get close to you because, hey, my mom left me. So you're going to leave me one day. So I'll get so close. I'll draw you in. I'll make you feel good to make me feel good. And when I feel like I'm getting too comfortable or you're getting too comfortable, you call me babe, you text me all day. No, nah, I'm not to cut this stuff out. Boom, get off the sliding board, fall on your ass, get off the merry-go-round, bump your head. I'll come back and save you. Let me hold you. Let me nurse you back to health. Okay, baby, I'm sorry. And it starts all over. Man, yeah, that's... It's draining though. It's it is draining. draining. And it's hard to see like a friend go through that because I had a really good friend who... Actually, it's pretty well known that she was in a very, very abusive relationship. He tried to kill her. He's in prison. He's serving like prison time right now. And it was this relationship of like super high highs and super low lows. So every time he would beat her ass, he would have like the day after of like, he would take the day off work. He would stay home. He would take care of her. He would massage her feet. He would get her blankets. They would watch their favorite show. And it was fine for a week. And then he would like, bang her head against the, you know, the dash of the car and knock her teeth out again. And that was just like, I saw this something cycle. like that. That was like his MMA fighter and it's pretty, pretty. That's cheap. who it is. Yeah. I saw it and I was like, how do you hit a woman? First of all, just, I mean, not just like, I mean, like beat her like a guy. Yeah. She's very, very tiny. She's like five foot. Maybe at the time she was 105 pounds and he was easily walking around 200, 210 at the time. And he's a, you know, MMA fighter. Yeah. Me and my sister, matter of fact, my sister and I just talked about that a couple of months ago. I was like, did you see this? I'm looking, I'm like, Jesus. But yeah. So it's a it's a vicious cycle. It's cat and mouse. They, they have fun with it. And then when they get when they when a narcissistic person is, becomes drained and participating in that, they'll find a different person because a different person is starting over with new energy with them. Right. Exactly. And actually he found a wife from prison. So he's married now. And the woman had a son, I think, or a daughter, I don't know, but it has a kid and, you know, brings the kid to the prison to see him. I'm just like, my mind is like, I can't. I saw his name in Tattoo War Machine. I was like, hey. Yeah. And, and he, well, I don't know what he did to cover it up, but he had her, her last name like right here across forever. But yeah, I was actually called to testify in that. It was so crazy. I, thankfully, they didn't end up meeting me, but I was going to be there, you know, to help no matter what. But going back to what I was saying, like, I knew that he was doing that to her, but she's not the type that's going to tell me. She's just not. And I knew like he was verbally abusing her because I heard it myself firsthand. I was in the car with them when they would fight and he would just talk so ugly to her. It was brutal. Yeah. And so when the district attorney is like, did you ever see any bruising? I'm like, yeah, but it could have been from the coffee table. Like I don't have firsthand account of, you know, him physically hitting her because he hit it. So that's a whole different other ball game. Obviously mine narcissistic relationship was different because he'd never hit me physically. Well, I never hit any of my girlfriends either, but it was like, I used to pride myself on saying, you know, I'm not taking her money. I don't want to give some. 
but I was taking a heart, you know what I'm saying? What advice would you give to say a friend of a friend who's going through when, if they witness this cycle of abuse going on, or if they see, if they feel any inkling, like what advice would you give to that friend to talk to, you know, their friend about their partner? I mean, is there anything you could say? Yeah. I mean, you have to give her examples of other people that have gone through this, right? You have to tell her about the end result, which could be death, mental health issues, drugs, being permanently scarred. Somebody may throw acid in your face, make you look ugly so that nobody else will have you. Yeah, you got to be real with them because they do those things, you know, cutting their hair, things that happen to your friend, you know. So the end result, you got to paint a picture for people. That's a wrap for this episode of The Luxury Dropout. Make sure to visit stephaniejoplin.com to find all of Steph's episodes, including full podcast descriptions and photos of her guests. Until next time, besties.